You're listening to Raising Anchor, a Rhode Island FC podcast. We're glad you're here. Hello and welcome to Raising Anchor, your podcast and source for all things Rhode Island FC. I'm your host, Matt Entrican, and with me, as always, is the co-host extraordinaire, Jason Carey. Jason, how are you doing? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? I am in a weird state right now, if I'm being honest. Uh, our studio is in shambles around us due to some mid-week construction. And also in shambles uh, is the New England Revolution, and <laughs> I have been just eating popcorn and watching this unfold. It's rare that you see a sports club, or, or sporting franchise for that matter, do everything wrong, and this is a textbook case of what not to do and to learn from it. Yeah, the uh, smoke from the tire fire is kind of polluting the neighborhood over here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Pawtucket is definitely downwind from Foxborough, for sure. I I mean, listen, again, we need the bumper sticker. We're not an MLS podcast, but it is insane uh, how much is going on to our brothers, you know, 25 minutes north of us. And the only reason I even want to start with it is, you know, to make sure, because we've had some listeners ask this question. It's also been getting kind of circulated around on social media is with all of the upheaval, you know, is this an opportunity for one, Rhode Island FC to steal or, or acquire any talent, uh, whether that's at the coaching or technical staff levels or even players that may just want to kind of abandon this this ship? Um, and then also just address, you know, what does Rhode Island FC do in this position? Because it's a, it's a really unique experience, um, you know, in the, broader, in the broader picture. So I think, I don't think there's a single listener who's already listening to us that isn't interested enough to already know what's going on with the New England Revolution, especially considering how dated this will be at the point that they hear it. But the idea that Bruce Arena, the most wingless coach in MLS, is out for saying something. And, you know, if we're, if we're honest, and, and I think this is where the headline got lost a lot, was that, you know, he apologized and he resigned, which, you know, tells me there was definitely something that he did that he shouldn't have done. And I think that has been because of all of the other allegations that has been completely left at the at the side of the road like we are so focused on the the betrayals and the controversies that are engineered as a result of this decision that i think we've lost the core narrative of bruce arena did something and he's no longer he's no longer with the league and he can't come back in without like letters of recommendation uh, he has to get an A on his homework, and he has to ask Don Garber personally and like cook him a meal before he can be invited back into MLS. Yeah, it it's hard to say with with the knowledge that we have because we really don't know what happened. Maybe by the time listeners hear this, that some more stuff will come out. But it's a lot of speculation. So I like that you do bring up he did he did apologize. It seems like he's admitted he's wrong. But in the current kind of state of things with the whole canceling and wokeness and whatever, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like you can kind of, you know, long term, maybe that will help him. But in the immediate, it is kind of getting washed over. Um, but like I said, we really don't know. It could, 
you know, I, I hope not because he, he does have a legacy with U.S. soccer, but like maybe he said some really bad things. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. If now that we know more, but again, not enough, my guess is, is that he said something in front of the comfortability of people like Kurt Anolfo and Richie Williams, who he has worked with for decades. And he said something at a time where maybe he felt comfortable. And I am in no way condoning this, but there's a, you know, what I call your customer service or your podcast language and how you talk and project. And then maybe there's like your rougher side that you you say and do things that, again, not necessarily saying it's appropriate, but maybe there's another version of Bruce that people really don't know. But whatever that is, it's just so damaging that they went on for weeks saying that they couldn't talk about anything. And again, that's the nature of an NDA. Uh, and for listeners, I've, I've seen on, on social media, what's an NDA? I've been NDA'd. A non-disclosure agreement um, that, you know, unfortunately, they couldn't talk about it. They were under investigation for the for the accusations and the allegations themselves. They were a part of an active investigation. So the fact that they didn't say anything and then they find out that maybe they were either contributors, the sources of it, the originators of the NDA, or excuse me, of the complaint, it's just a really bad look for the club because that's how these things work. You don't talk about anything, but because of the need of secrecy and the need to protect people, this was always going to be the result. People demanding transparency out there, that's not how investigations like this work. And the fact that they've gone further to kind of isolate things, if Richie Williams, who now, by the way, he's on a leave, he's on a vacation, because guess what? You can't fire a whistleblower. And if again, and if he's a whistleblower, that shouldn't be a badge of like shame. If if he felt something wasn't right and he called it out or addressed it, like we have to honor and understand that that's how that works. If you take this situation and you apply it to you being like a cashier at a grocery store and your manager is doing something really messed up, you don't say, well, that manager was manager of the year three times in a row. This wouldn't be the same kind of conversation. But because of Bruce's popularity, because of his legacy within ussf and just soccer as a global sport i think i mean i i would imagine bruce arena is probably the only name that people know in the coaching world outside of outside of you know the u.s when it comes to international awareness it's just it's crazy to me that all of these things are happening and i don't say that anyone's innocent or guilty here other than bruce he because he, he's admitted something to that regard but now you look at it where Richie Williams is out on a not an administrative leave. He's just been given a vacation. As a result, Clint PA is now the coach of the revolution, the second interim coach. So they've had three head coaches now in nine weeks. Um, and he comes up from revs too. And then on top of that, you've got other casualties, if you want to call it that, with Dave Vandenberg. And then like the one that really blew me away was Shari Joseph. That, that, that man's a living legend when it comes to the new england revolution like that's a household name and the fact that they came to like they saying they're saying it was physical altercations on online but the fact that they came to such outcry and outspoken disagreements that he's now been you know mutually dismissed from the club it, it it's insane to me how quickly that this organization is is spiraling they're unraveling at the seam and they're still in like second or third place so while they only have a few games left and people are like, oh, they're going to go straight to the bottom of the table. No, but I think that this seriously messes with their, their headspace to compete for an MLS Cup. They're, they, they're getting in their own way here. 
Yeah, as we approach the business end of the season, as they say, this is not the time to <laughs> have a meltdown. Um, yeah, I think it's a good point you bring up how if this was someone else in the league besides Bruce, we probably wouldn't be having this whole kerfuffle, right? It'd be like, oh, well, I don't know, he he, some sort of HR thing, he did something wrong. But like like you said, this is this is a legend in U.S. soccer, and whatever it whatever it is that happens seems to have caused a ripple effect because it's not only him; it's this whole organization right now is. In some turmoil. Well, you know, and the crazy thing too is if you look at the articles written in the athletic, you know, they're kind of indicating that it's it's again being started at the behest of Richie Williams. And whether that's true or not, people are just drawing their own conclusions to it. And what I find so fascinating is that when you look at the people that are up in arms against Bruce about this, that, that internally through this NDA and what we don't know about. These are all journeymen in the MLS who owe their careers in one way or another to Bruce. So like Richie Williams, he he's washed out of many different coaching staffs. He's he was a player under Bruce at one point. Kurt Anolfo was he owes everything to Bruce Arena. He washed out of I think it was DC United at one point. I know he did terrible in Kansas City. And then he flamed out at the LA Galaxy after Bruce left that team, handed the keys to the organization when he went to go run the U.S. men's... He tried to save the U.S. men's national team. He gave, at the time, the most winningest club with one of the largest payrolls. And I know, I think they had some circumstances at the time that were unique. And Kurt Anolfo ran that team into the ground, getting the wooden spoon for the most winningest franchise at that point in MLS history. Kurt Anolfo lost his job, ran off, and I think he went to the lights, Las Vegas lights for a bit, and then, surprise, he becomes back and he becomes the sporting director of, of the New England Revolution. So again, both of these guys owe a lot of their career in thanks to Bruce Arena. But the weird thing is, is that the article's reporting that a lot of the staff uh, from the technical side were going to be let go at the end of the season. So, and that's the challenging part. That's the hypocrisy or the the betrayal part is that Oh, were these people all losing their jobs? So they were using things that they had historically never had a problem with that were said 5, 10, 20 years ago. And now because they're angry, they're losing their jobs. And I don't know why they were losing their jobs if last year they had one of the most winningest seasons and this year they were in you know second place uh, at, at, as of this recording. Like, I don't know why you would cut that that staff out, but is this just one of those, like, I, I have my cake and I want to eat it too situation? It's just so weird. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why you see so much discourse and speculation on it is that there's a lot there's a lot of layers to this, and it it just begs to, like, you know, what is it that happened? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, and... Either we'll never know and they'll keep this thing, you know, locked up wherever the Ark of the Covenant is from Raiders of the Lost Ark in Area 51, or we'll find out in like the next two weeks and it will be bad. Because again, Bruce did leave. And so to, to kind of shift gears, the reason we're even talking about this is there's been a lot of uh, questions online about, you know, what, first I think to address, will Shalri uh, Joseph join our club as a coach? There's been some speculation online that watch out, he's coming here. He knows and, and had time with Coach Cano, so he you know there's a New England Revolution connection there. He's well-loved in New England itself. It's just a move down the street, so from a commute perspective, it's just maybe a little bit further of a drive. And so there's been this conversation, you know, will, will he join the club? I don't think there's room 
at this point in the organization to bring him on board. I think if this happened four months ago, it'd be a different conversation. But with, you know, Dave McKay, uh, Carl Spratt, you've got, um, who am I missing? There's another one. Oh, Sean Carey, your twin or brother or cousin. We're not sure. <laughs> and then even like Jason Gove as like the team administrator. I, I don't think a club this at the beginning here has room to take on another technical member. Maybe they do, but from all intent of conversations I've had with the front office, they seem to be pretty much at their at their capacity or what they expect to be staffing for the first season. Yeah, I think in terms of like coaching and like on the field side, we're probably not going to see any acquisitions. Maybe some players kind of towards the late end of their career if they kind of want to stay in the area. Maybe some of that. Some some what player coaches that kind of style. Maybe um, possibly when the actual you know season happens, maybe we might need some more front office people. I, I'm not sure where they sit on sit on that if they're they're fully staffed or it's because it is you know it is the off season to a certain extent because the club is not running in that capacity right now, so they don't need anyone else. But yeah, I, I it, it's possible, but I don't see us, you know, trying to go go out and grab a bunch, maybe one or two. Yeah, and and honestly, too, I I almost think it would be a backslide to be an assistant coach in USL for him, because you know he he's already an assistant coach at at an MLS club. He was the head coach of uh, uh, Granada um, as an international coach, technically, right? Um, so. I, I could see him instead, and I, I hate to say this, but I could see him driving two hours further further west and Hartford still doesn't have a head coach, you know, or or USL 1's Portland, Maine uh, club, whatever they're going to be called. If, 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 if he's got the ability to build something from the ground up, I almost would take one of those two jobs instead of being a continued second, you know, understudy to, to someone else. So... I I almost hate to say it, but I think I think they got the wrong New England USL team, and we could very much see him on in the wrong the ugliest colors possible next season. So it'll it just be really interesting to shake up. Yeah, um, like I said, it just it'll be curious how how the next few weeks pan out if we if we get any sort of actual news out of this, like you said, or is this just kind of buried? Everyone kind of goes their own separate ways, and we just don't hear about it. Until like twenty years when they make a movie about it, you know, the, the ninety and ninety, yeah. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this question: You're you're the Rhode Island FC front office at this point. This is all going on. You see fans like threatening to boycott or not renew their season tickets. What do you do? I mean, what do you do differently, or do you not do anything differently as a front office right now? When when another club, your quote unquote closest neighbor, is just hemorrhaging fans right now. I don't know if like from a from an HR standpoint, maybe if they can kind of like, you know, give them a call and give a little nudge and maybe not get the actual details, but maybe kind of get like a general knowledge of what happens just so that they can learn from it. You know, I don't know if that's kind of an insider type of thing where they would trust each other um, so that they can look at that and say, okay. There's been speculation of toxic environment, right? So maybe if it turns out that it was something like that, maybe they can look at their their rules and regulations and see how can we make sure something like this doesn't happen. Well, um, that's easy. You just don't 
have nine weeks of you know investigate or was it nine or six weeks it was a long time yeah yeah i i know but because anywhere it, else anywhere else in the league any sport for that matter i think it, this is like a four-day wrap you you go in you look at the examination of the evidence and you go okay yeah you did something really naughty or bad this is we'll figure out the adjustment to it but you're getting an immediate suspension and resignation we'll figure out like how bad the fines or the damages on the back end Six weeks, like either this was really bad, or like they had to contain this and get a lot of people under NDA before they they swept the rug. But but I'm not I'm not asking what the club can learn from this. I think the club, like I said, can just do the opposite and they would be fine. What does the club do differently to to uh, to not appease but like attract those fans that maybe were already always going to be diehard Revs fans and not even consider this, and now maybe it's suddenly like on the table that hey. There is other soccer in the area. Why am I spending my money with the Revolution? Rhode Island FC is coming around the corner. Do they do anything different? Like, do they put a billboard that says, "Hey, we never had Bruce on our team"? You know, like what, what, what can they do, or what should they be doing, or do they not need to do anything? Uh, I think from from that standpoint, you know, like, is there any? You want to appeal to to the fans in the area. Um, Without maybe, I mean, just in my maybe without being classless <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> don't you know, do the you San don't, Diego FC you thing. Don't need to, you know, yeah, <laughs> be be going there. Um, but you know, you could say, hey, like, don't even have to leave the state, <laughs> right? We're just we're just a few, you know, right now we're a few minutes further. But next, you're, you're driving a couple twenty minutes to the left instead of to yeah, the right. Yeah, you're staying you're staying within the state lines, you know, and we're we're going to have an exciting new product for you. So you so you're saying take the high road, don't do anything, continue to be excellent and do what you've already been doing and there's no need to capitalize or try to carve out a piece of this action. <laughs> I mean that, that that's at least me. I don't know if you've got some you're thoughts like the yourself. nicest CEO I've ever, I'm I'm thinking that, like that's why I'm not a CEO. <laughs> I'm too I'm too benevolent. I I'd, I'd be like, "Oh, I just pay everyone." fairly you know <laughs> i look I, I i am definitely not that nice i i don't know what i would do i i do know that this is the time to strike while the iron is hot maybe some strategic billboards in like the major freeway corridors and roads leading into gillette unless there's some sort of rules against that um or or just like a, a letter like hey we'll treat you different come on over I think of um I think of like when banks like try to steal each other's customers like we'll give you free checking and we'll set you up for life with the best credit rating interest scores of all time and just try us out like I almost look at it that way of hey like oh could you this is what I do okay this this is me cutthroat give us give us two revolution scarves and we'll give you two tickets to one of the first three home games you know like just just trade them in you know like trade in your allegiance <laughs> yeah yeah well I, that's what i would literally run that program that campaign and they'd be good seats too like hey give us two scarves we'll give you two free seats and you know a soda and hot dog combination so if you like bring the kids you know that they, they get something out of it too that is that is how you do it then you get their emails as part of the deal you you give them all the sales pitches you, you let the ticket sales executives start hounding them for season ticket memberships and you're done. You locked them in. That is the Rhode Island way. Finish it off with some hot wieners all the way. And <laughs> got me sold. 
Uh, you know, I have not heard yet if there'll be like a Soggy's cart or some sort of, you know, New York system wieners like deal at the stadium at Bernie. I, I, I mean, there has to be, but if they be done that to just start slinging them yourselves out of the back of the car. Oh man. Uh, so yeah. So anyways, I, I, again, I don't even know though if, if that's the wrong thing to do. Maybe you just do nothing and, because in, in, in all honesty, the club is doing great. The season ticket memberships continue to sell. We're down now to less than uh, one-fifth of the remaining inventory for the entire season in terms of tickets. Um, that's an insane number to be... like. That's a great problem to have, right? So maybe, maybe it's just focus on what you're already doing well and don't let the noise distract you in the area. I don't know. Again, I'm not a CEO or a president of a front office. I, I wish I had heard about this stuff before we had the interview with Brett. It actually happened at the same time. So on top of open tryouts, you had the, the chaos with the revs. And by the time I got done doing that interview, I learned of all of it after I had already asked them my questions. So for those of you that listened last week and you're like, why didn't you ask tougher questions or why didn't you ask these hot topics? I didn't know going into that interview that that was the case. So. Yeah, I, I think it's funny. You were telling me right as you showed up, they announced. Oh yeah, <laughs> open tryouts. Coach Coach Connor just like, oh yeah, the tryouts. I'm like, oh, what about him? Like, yeah, we we just announced it. And I was like, oh, well, my phone's already in airplane mode, so I don't mess this recording up. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so speaking of, uh, it was really good. I, I, you missed out. I really wish you had been had the chance to to be there for the interview. I uh, met a lot of the front front office the staff is very welcoming very very great uh true fans of the sport and true fans of seeing this organization you know flourish and grow into becoming the premier rhode island sporting destination uh and it's just really fun to see them kind of all putting that that collective effort together uh you can tell that they're a group of individuals that really care um i did not know that it was in kind of the uh not their city hall but like their blackstone valley um visitor center so you walk in and you get like the history of like Pawtucket and Blackstone River area uh it's just like really cool ambiance like I'd never been in that building before uh so just just really good time I ran into most of the coaching staff um they were really all excited about open tryouts um they look at it as a great opportunity to see local talent come in and find those people that maybe the scouting systems overlooked or missed or because unfortunately soccer at that, you know, that younger level is unfortunately like a pay to play kind of situation. Uh, maybe they didn't have their, their chances in their ways. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes of the November 11th tryouts. Maybe, maybe we'll go. It's, it's uh, they're going to be in East Providence. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll go out there. You know, you maybe, maybe we'll slip the hundred dollar fee in and get you out there on the field. Jason, what do you think? <sighs> Yeah, I wish I would have. I, you know, I should have been training sooner. I mean, you've known that this open tryout was coming for at least four or five months. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, but you know, it was summertime. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, so yeah. So so. But again, the staff is really great. Uh, we already have the Coach Cano interview lined up, so uh, probably won't be for a couple of episodes, but anticipate that. And then um, Brett was really great, and and you know, definitely vocalized that he'd love to be back on the podcast at a later date uh we're going to line up some additional interviews with the stadium manager uh the grassroots community manager and then you know the big fish that we still have to reel in are going to be mike parkhurst and uh brett johnson and so you know i we can do a remote interview but i always think that it's better to, to get to meet them in person they get to meet us so hopefully 
the next time all of our our travels cross basically when they're here in rhode island uh we can we can kind of make that happen so i learned a lot more about the mascot and the kits uh fortunately we cannot share anything at this point but again by the time this podcast is is out i imagine that news will have already dropped about that stuff so uh, just all around, really great time, and uh, just excited, to see, exciting to see how everything got made. And for listeners, again, if you haven't picked up your season ticket member scarves yet, great opportunity to go in. You may actually run into some of the staff that right now the the store is not built, so they're just kind of stationing it off of the front of the front office. And so, if you're ever you know want to get starstruck by some of the 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 players that be, that's the opportunity for you to go in and, and get the scarves and and uh, and kind of maybe do like a hi, how you doing, and meet and greet. So, um, but I think I think that wraps things up. We have another exciting interview that we get to share with um, with the listeners tonight. So you know we've heard loud and clear that we did not uh, bring the best introduction of USL uh, to the listeners. We gave a, a basic level introduction, I think, the first time around. So we went out and got the professional uh, in in one of the kind of, I think, the showman of of USL. Would you say he's like the, the celebrity? Like the actual expert? Yeah, like yeah. His, his USL tactics. So yeah. So uh, it is our pleasure to introduce to you uh, our interview with John Morrissey. Uh, from the USL show and USL tactics. So at this point, uh, sit back and enjoy the interview with John. So it is our great pleasure to introduce for the first time and uh, hopefully of many more to come, John Morrissey of USL tactics. John, how are you doing? Yeah, doing really well. Really happy to be talking to you guys. I'm excited about the team coming into the league. So yeah, hopefully first of many appearances. Agreed, agreed. We can't wait to uh, get to the bottom of a lot of questions that we have, uh, and I know our listeners have as well, to understand what we can anticipate and expect uh, for the 2024 season to come. So, Jason, do you want to you kick things off? All right, let's start this off here. Um, so, for our listeners who are not familiar with you, uh, website, podcast, all that is that you do, can you kind of introduce yourself and, and talk about, like, a bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so well, I guess like villain origin story-wise, it was kind of the middle of the pandemic. The league was on pause and I just found myself I mean, at home during the lockdown stage of things, just messing around on uh, footballreference.com. I, I don't know if fans of other sports would know like basketball reference, baseball reference. And there's clearly a gap in really league-wide coverage of the USL much less any of that coverage that focuses on numbers, focuses on tactics in any meaningful way. And so I figured, hey, I've got this downtime. I'm going to grab some numbers off the internet. I'm going to really dig into this league, and I'm going to start posting about it on Twitter. And things have gone from there. Uh, I inter- I, so I basically break down every single USL championship game in a thread about what went on tactically. Uh, I now I write for backyield.com. I have my own Substack. I was lucky enough because of what I was doing online to be able to uh, work for two teams um, in each of the past two seasons. So with Tampa Bay under Neil Collins and Sacramento under Mark Briggs. I feel like all of the experiences made me better as an analyst, better as a pundit. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just a nerd who really enjoys writing, talking, watching this sport in this league in particular. 
John, how did you get into the USL itself? Was it just that gap in existing information or was there something special that attracted you to the league? Yeah, so I grew up in Indianapolis um, and I obviously was following the sport of soccer when Indy 11 came to be right about 2014. And they were in the NASL at that stage, but uh, in 2018, they migrated over to the USL. So my fandom came with. Well, then I go off to college. My family ends up moving to the Phoenix area. So I end up in Phoenix for uh, that coronavirus portion when I'm just at home during lockdown. Um, And so I kind of pick up the fandom of Rising. So that gives me two tie-ins with uh, the USL and USL clubs. So then it became the natural thing of, I'm already following this in a pretty casual way. Why don't I take that extra step and see what gives? So ended up being pretty clean for me. Just taking the full plunge, it sounds like. Do, do you have uh, any kind of favoritism towards other soccer clubs, either domestically or abroad? Never really got into MLS, so nothing there. But um, abroad, I'm a fan of Tottenham. And I know that can be divisive, given just like the sheer number of Arsenal people there are in U.S. soccer circles. I wouldn't say I'm like a diehard. I mean, I was into it more when I was getting into the sport and not as into the USL, but definitely still harbor some love for Tottenham. With the with the mentions of those clubs that you were providing analytics for, mm-hmm. uh, is that was that a kind of one man show, or did you work with uh, a sporting infrastructure to provide total team analytics? Because we just found recently that Rhode Island FC is partnering with Interpro to deliver sports analytics and club analytics for our club. So kind of just curious, was that a just a singular opportunity or were you partnering with a larger organization? Yeah, it was Well, with the Tampa Bay thing for the 2021 season. Uh, I got a DM on Twitter from Neil Collins uh, basically saying, hey, every year I try to bring on somebody with a little bit of knowledge of numbers. As a club, we have access to data from Scout, so why don't you use that? and come up with a scouting report every week for the team that we're going to play. And so that's what I did. Uh, since I, the year after I left the uh, role, Tampa Bay added somebody as like a much more formal a paid role for somebody to be in Tampa Bay, providing a similar style of analysis. And Sacramento, honestly, was the same story to what I did with Tampa Bay, where we're in the preseason phase of things. The head coach reaches out and says, hey, we've got some numbers. We don't really have a full-time analyst would you be willing to just mess around if we give you this access? And I mean, just being the person that I am who likes to take on too much work, I figured why not and had a blast with it both times. I was able to talk with the coaches in each uh, instance. So nothing but fun. But to hear that about Rhode Island is a good sign for what they're trying to do behind the scenes. And knowing what I know about some clubs in the USL, it puts them a step ahead. So that's a great segue to the next question. You know, we do have in our uh, front office, we have Brett Louie, who comes from USL as a uh, operations specialist. He was the second in command of their operations team. So I, I assume he's on the, you know, the, the forward foot of making decisions like this. But what could you tell listeners as we enter this first season, um, based on those previous incumbent teams have joined, what, what do you... What can listeners expect as our team joins the league? Yeah, I mean, on the field, I whenever there's a new expansion team, I tend to think temper your expectations a little bit. It's a hard league to come into and win right away. Uh, obviously, there have been exceptions to that. Like Detroit City came in and had a very good start to the season last time. Of course, they were an exception because they carried over so much of their roster from NISA. 
when you're talking about the more true expansion efforts, they tend to be a little bit rockier. Um, I think in terms of the roster build, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Who is this team going to go and get? You'll often see the manager that comes in in the first year really lean on their connections to bring in guys that they have familiarity with. Obviously, someone like Akondo Smith has those relationships with a lot of the guys who have been in Birmingham. But even thinking back, like San Diego Loyal specifically got Nate Miller as an assistant because he was somebody who had connections to uh, the Lansing Ignite in League One. And three or four of the guys that Miller brought with him are still key contributors. So thinking about the guys that Smith has connections to and then whoever fills out this staff, there's going to be a lot of the network effects. You're also going to see some of the uh, local players come in for sure. I know the club is going to hold uh, an open tryout sooner rather than later, later just to see who they can get. So that'll be something big. I think more relevantly, it's just enjoying that first year experience as a fan. Everything I understand about this team seems like they're going to do a bang up job off the pitch, trying to make it the most welcoming, exciting environment. I think it's going to be very cool to have maybe some of the local rivalry stuff with uh, Hartford to an extent. So nothing but high expectations, but just realize that there are going to be some growing pains early on. Nice. Is there anything that um, RFC could learn from the stakes of previous teams, like in their first seasons? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm thinking about like a team like Monterey, who came in and started very, very slowly. I think tactically, stylistically, you don't want to come in with a group of players who don't have that level of familiarity with one another and try to instill something that's going to overwhelm them in terms of style. Don't come out with the team and try to think you're going to possess the ball 60% of a game and play really free-flowing offensive soccer. I think that's what Detroit recognized pretty splendidly, that coming in and being defense first is just an easier way to organize yourself, to lay that groundwork, and to be competitive from day one. And again, there can be exceptions to that, once again, referencing San Diego a couple years back where I mean, they came out flying. But certainly just knowing the limitations, don't panic mid-season. You mentioned Louis coming in as the leadership here. The front office seems to be a lot of people with perspective, with wisdom. If you are coming in thinking that it's going to be bang up from minute one, you could see yourself making dumb acquisitions, making dumb ac- or dumb decisions with the personnel. So just be patient is really what I would preach. So a lot of times uh, with soccer not being as popular as it is in other countries abroad, we find ourselves getting compared, at least is what we've learned so far, to the MLS, uh, to the U.S. soccer men's and women's national teams is kind of the premier example. What would you say is something listeners can expect as a differentiation between the USL and MLS as we enter the first season? Yeah, that's a good one as well. Um, MLS, as a league, just has a lot more star power. Even, like, you think about Messi, obviously, but there are players with national team experience, teams in bigger markets as well. I think what sets the USL apart is that there's a real focus on community across the board. Almost every club has or gives players and fans access to one another in a way that you don't see at the level of MLS. There's a lot more of a familial vibe. So 
if I were a fan of Rhode Island, I think that would be the thing that really sells me on coming and supporting this club where, sure, it's great if you're looking over to England and supporting a team there. Maybe you followed the New England Revolution to a certain extent. But having this club locally with the way that the USL so prioritizes making this thing tangible, making the experience something that's a lot more personal, I think that's the selling point that makes this such a fun league to follow. Me and Matt have talked about like our theory in terms of tactics. We're, mm-hmm. we're not too familiar with USL. We, we theorize that maybe coaches' tactics might be dictated kind of based upon the players available because of the financial situation of the league to a certain extent. Is is there any truth to this? Yeah, I think it can depend. I mean, there's a spectrum aspect to it where on one side you'll have guys like, say, the Bob Lilly in Pittsburgh, where the Riverhounds are pretty consistently on the lower end of player salaries comparative to the league. So naturally you're going to try to play a system where you can plug and play a bit. You you can sign a lot of players on very cheap contracts, but there's a little bit of fungibility where, okay, that's great that we're missing one of our center backs, but we've got a guy who can come off the bench. He has two or three really key responsibilities, and he's playing that game. So Lily is like designing a system around the fact that he's got depth but a lack of star power. Whereas maybe you take like a Mark Lowry, who's the coach of Indy 11, he uh, he used to coach in El Paso. He always plays a brand of soccer that's pretty much based around like a 4-4-2 diamond shape. But he's so focused on possession, he's really trying to dictate the game. So there are those people who are really ideologues in what they're doing philosophically and tactically. I think it makes the league interesting. I think someone like Akano Smith, who obviously spent a couple of years under Tommy Sohn in Birmingham, the Legion are a team that always dictate their style based on what they've got going with their uh, squad and their roster. There isn't that same level of being super doctrinaire and strict. So I would expect Smith to be somebody who thinks on his feet and really has a level of flexibility. And I think that's necessary unless you are like Tampa Bay or Louisville, who has one of the more expensive rosters in, in the East and in the league at large. Like Just being able to adjust and think on your feet based on the players that you've got is something that's going to take you far. So it's interesting, you kind of touched base on a couple of things that we want to ask you. And I think the first, because we truly don't know here on the podcast, and I'm going to assume that our average listener probably doesn't have this information yet either, is we know that there are some mechanics within the league that um, have you know rules and regulations, so things around international slots, total player mm-hmm. roster, but one of the things that I haven't been able to uh, understand yet is kind of what those salary caps or you know luxury taxes on payroll excess would be. Can you break that down a little bit more? Are there minimums, maximums, and certain thresholds that are expected of roster construction and total player salaries? Yeah, so there's no maximum. There's no luxury tax. Uh, really, the thing has been and uh, when the USL got a CBA a year or two ago um, to protect the players... It's really about getting over the floor more than anything else. Uh, I, I can't remember the number off my head. I want to say, I mean, it's it's a pretty small level of base compensation. I want to say like $2,300 per month per player. And given that you're having at least 20 players uh, at a bare minimum, you could have a team that's running with about a million and a half salary-wise at a baseline. Now, obviously... There are a lot of teams out there who are paying more than that, 
who are outbidding one another, giving players six-digit salaries. And you do hear about that. I would expect Rhode Island to probably slot in somewhere in between. And I think that's standard if you think about a roster here where you're going to look at that $3 million-ish range, possibly. Um, but yeah, nothing about a, a salary cap and certainly nothing about a luxury tax, just because it's kind of never been the expectation that teams are going to spend all that much. So then in that extent, are the teams that we see as the most winningest and as we've understood mm-hmm. kind of the records that exist, do those historically end up being the teams that spend the most for a cup run? Or are those teams that are just better built with the resources that they can find and allocate? Yeah, there's a correlation between the spending and the results, certainly. I think the beauty of the league is that even the highest spenders aren't really like dropping that much cash on their roster. Now, there are teams where they're really hamstrung by the fact that they don't spend. Like I'm thinking about Las Vegas or Loudoun, who just don't have the resources whatsoever. What, there's maybe I don't even know what the floor number would be where once you're over X amount of spending, like you're going to be able to be in the mix no matter what, and those extra dollars can only go so far. I mean, I, yeah, once again, outside of like Las Vegas, Rio Grande, Loudoun, I think it comes down to your flexibility, the ability of the coach to fit the style of the players, those same points that I'm harping on where somebody like a Phoenix Rising, for instance... They don't publish any numbers, but you can tell by the names, the players that they've got there, they're probably a top two or three roster uh, in terms of the player salary outlay that they're going for this season. And they're a playoff bubble team in the West. Whereas, I mean, you can look at Tampa Bay on the flip side of the coin, who's always one of the higher spenders and is always in the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think that goes to show that money isn't the only thing that matters here. So we also know that, you know, outside of the money piece that uh, a majority of the signings that come into the league uh, because of the because of the financial situations are usually typically free agencies. Um, I guess what we haven't seen yet and we've only been trying to understand through acquisitions we've seen following the different teams this season. uh, What is the average lifespan of a player uh, signing contracts with teams? Is it something where we see, is it often to see a three to five year uh, sign? Or is this something that coaches, you know, play year by year? And and is there a lot of reshuffling of organizations at the end of a season? Yeah, most rosters are built on one year contracts with an option year or maybe two option years where the team can opt in to keep that player around. I think we're rapidly seeing that trend change, however. Uh, I know I've referenced Monterey Bay as an expansion team from last season. They announced almost the entirety of their inaugural roster as coming back on two or three year extensions, which is really quite groundbreaking within this league. So once upon a time, you rarely saw players stick around for very long at all. And that's something that I know just uh, going back to the competitiveness answer. The reason why Louisville City has been so good for so many years in the East is that they've had a solid core for seven or eight years And that's something else that's unheard of. Now, most of those players were signing one-year deals over and over again. But just that trend towards continuity, that trend towards giving players guaranteed years and guaranteed money is definitely something that you're going to see more of. And I would expect Rhode Island to be pretty proactive about making that change because it's something that can let them attract a better roster. If you've got an offer from, I don't know, like New Mexico 
that's maybe worth a little bit more in a one-year salary, but Rhode Island is giving you a second guaranteed year, that's something that can set you apart without making you break the bank in terms of the salary outlet. So yeah, good question there. Do we think that there are going to be year over year the same kind of competitive teams? So you've mentioned the Louisvilles, you've mentioned the Tampa Bays, and then you mentioned kind of the breakout season that Detroit City had when they joined the league. Does it become pretty, I don't want to say predictable, but does it do the same players kind of stay in those top echelons of the rankings and standings, or is the league very dynamic um, in the ten- in the sense of what can flip and flop? Yeah, I mean, you're probably good every season for like one team really coming out and shocking you per conference, and then on the flip side, one team coming out and laying an egg and being completely disappointing. I, I would point to Charleston, for instance, in the Eastern Conference this season, where. Um, they were second to last in the East in 2022. They came, they went and got the co- reigning coach of the year. They rebuilt their roster and now they're right in the mix for the one seed. Uh, I know I mentioned Phoenix as well. They were historically dominant in the West for years and years. And then last season was a total disaster. They fired their longtime coach. So that's the sort of thing where you're going to see the variation. But I know I've mentioned Louisville City. I've mentioned Tampa Bay. I think... They've met each other in the conference final game five years running, I want to say. So there's definitely a level of institutionalized culture at some of these clubs where they have a core of players they trust. They've got a really good coaching staff and they have the assistant coaches. They're bringing in the supplements to that main manager where if that guy draws MLS interest or goes overseas, there's a next man up to keep that reign of success going. So it sounds like with a lot of the 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 rules, like you said, there's no there's no max. There there mm-hmm. is a the CBA has set like you know a, a floor. And if we look at the history of the league, there, there's various teams who have gone to MLS. Some mm-hmm. dropped down to USL one. Like some of the lifespan of the teams, almost like chaotic. The league itself seems like it is doing well. The teams itself are a little up and down. Do you think that at some point? there'll be some more structure that you have you see in MLS or, or does this like really help the league that it's almost a little a little Before bit chaotic in some that, weird way Jason did you just say MLS well MLS being very strict I know yeah, I MLS just, is like the opposite side of the spectrum where <laughs> yeah I mean, they're all owned by the same entity it's like yeah we don't say yeah. Those, we don't say those three letters on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's just you know we, we we're making comparisons for, for it is a new team in an area that only has you know the revs. No, I think it is a good comparison point, but at the same time, you're dealing with an entirely different echelon of like net worth of the owners and financial backing in MLS. Where the USL, by comparison, no one is making anything worthwhile in terms of TV money. The sponsorship isn't as prevalent. The attendances are lower, so you're getting much less revenue at the gate comparatively. Although attendance at the gate pretty much is the primary thing that is putting money in the purses of these owners. Um, In terms of longer term structure and consistency, I think what the USL has done very successfully is build up a core of probably 16 to 20 teams right now in the championship that are rock solid and would completely shock you if they uh, ended up folding or something in that manner. 
there are, there are a couple clubs, of course, where, yeah, MLS could come calling and that would be that. But this has been a five to 10 year process of taking a pretty ragtag set of franchises, making sure that they're working towards having a youth set up so that you can sell on players and make a whole lot of money from that, that they're working towards getting a stadium that they own and therefore they're not splitting the ticket revenue with some other third party. And again, that is huge for financial solidity. And they've also been uh, shedding those MLS affiliate teams. Once upon a time, there were 10 teams in the variety of like Atlanta United 2 or uh, I don't know, like Montreal Impact B or whatever. All of those are gone now. So you've got 24 independent teams right now. It'll be 25 next season, pending anything weird with like, I don't know, somebody folding that we don't see coming. But it's, it's sort of shedding the fat, making sure everyone's on the same ground. So I don't see it being quite as solid and strict as MLS at any point, just because of the nature of lower division soccer. But I think the league has made strides towards having a core and having a bit more normalcy. You mentioned the the markets where there's MLS competition, and you mentioned that stability and, and solidification. You know, mm-hmm. with the news that San Diego Loyal is ceasing operations at the end of this season. What, what can we learn from this that hasn't already been said on, you know, social media and in the news? You know, to me, coming in as a new fan to the league, the first thing that screams out to me is that any additional clubs that join, they have to be prepared to build a soccer-specific stadium or there just really isn't that, that viability and vitality that can help them succeed in markets where maybe one day MLS does try to come in and, and take their lunch. So... What's maybe something that isn't being talked about with the loyal folding at the end of the season? I mean, I hate to say that it's pretty simply the stadium, but it is. San Diego has done everything correct in terms of the branding, the community involvement, embedding themselves and making themselves a real fixture in the lives of their fans in a way that few other clubs have been uh, successful at doing. And they were just unlucky in the fact that they had to share a college football stadium where they were barely making any of that ticket revenue. They had to give to a whole lot of other sources. So there goes the main way that the San Diego Loyal are going to make money. Then if they want to go and look at building a stadium of their own, suddenly they've got an MLS competitor who's going to draw way more fans, suck up all of the media attention. If you're the ownership of San Diego, why are you going to drop $100 million to buy land, build a stadium, and then not have people to fill it because the MLS team is outcompeting you? So that's the unfortunate reality there. If you're a Rhode Island, the lesson is, as soon as possible, work towards getting that stadium project done. I think the one-to-one comparison uh, would be Colorado Springs. That's another kind of mid-sized market within the context of this league. They built their own facility. They're drawing 7,500 people a game. They're filling that thing with concerts, with other events to make a secondary revenue stream. That's the future of this league, and it's something that every club in the vein of Rhode Island really needs to be focusing on. You know, it's so interesting that you say that about the San Diego uh, project, because one of the things that really echoes in my mind is, you know, when you look at San Diego as a city, uh, it has a terrible sports record. Uh, even the Padres are, while they're doing better now, they're they're not exactly uh, a championship consistent team. That you know, World Series is, has escaped them many a time. Um, and then with all of their other sports kind of having folded at one place or another, 
what's really interesting to me is San Diego is a population of, I think, like 1.4 million people. And, you know, you look at a stadium's capacity to hold four to 10,000 and then, you know, anticipate the number of people that will watch on ESPN Plus or, you know, whatever, whatever soccer medium there is. I look at Rhode Island FC and we are 25 minutes from Foxborough where the New England Revolution play. And the state of Rhode Island has about 1.4 million people in its entire its entire area. So I'm, I'm really curious if we use this example and you know we hope that we continue to be a success, that this is the barometer that can tell other owners or people that maybe have that concern that MLS or something else may compete, that you can have a viable product, a successful product, if you build it correctly and, and do things the right way. Yeah. And I mean, knowing what I know about New England, and I'm no expert, but the Revs historically have been one of the less competitive teams in MLS, by my estimation. So if you come out with a Rhode Island side that's really specific to the community and tries to represent that, tries to give that up close and personal experience, and then puts a winning product on the field, comes out with a stadium project or plans for a stadium project that make the fan experience that much more unmissable and that much more exciting. I think that's the way you have to differentiate yourself. It's an interesting market. The championship has been discerning about who they let in these days. And I think that they recognize the challenges and they think that this group, they think that this city are going to be able to support the team in a really meaningful way. And you just got to trust that at a certain point. So what's really interesting to me is that, you know, when you look at the greater New England area, you'll ask any listener and they'll share that this is the first time in a very long time that Rhode Island itself is getting a professional sports team all their own that isn't supplying as a feeder system or a minor league system to a larger sport. So it will be really curious to see what happens kind of as an end game result from the fan perspective. And then when you look at all of the uh, craziness that is going on inside the Revs organization right now, I can't think of a better opportunity to poach people who may just be at their wits end on saying like, why do I continue to give money and support this club? So it'll be really, it's a really interesting time for Rhode Island FC to be entering the league. Yeah. I mean, you make a good point about what a year for this team to be coming into existence, like just as a point of comparison. Um, But mentioning the fact that this team is independent, they're not a feeder. I think that's really the hurdle that USL clubs have to overcome when they're marketing themselves to new fans. People know MLS exists, so when they see a league that isn't MLS, they automatically turn it into AAA baseball in their mind, where, oh, this team isn't in Major League Soccer, so naturally it's a bunch of young kids, it's a feeder league, or it's minor league, so why should I care about it? Whereas at the end of the day, like, there are former U.S. national team players who sign in this league every single season in multiple numbers, probably. This is a very high level of soccer with players who are going and competing in the Gold Cup every single time they hold it. There are independent teams in independent cities. There's almost no overlap with MLS. Like These clubs are the stars of their towns. So if you make it clear that this is high level, this is competitive, and you try to just do away with the idea of the affiliateness of it all. I think that's a really key step when you're trying to build the brand awareness for a new team. Speaking of like differentiating ourselves, um, recently the league had kind of brought up 
the the talk of pro rel. Um, mm-hmm. I personally think it, it would draw attention, and it's something completely foreign to American sports, and that would separate itself from the MLS. I think it would be very risky, but I'm totally for it. What do, what do you think about it? Is it something viable? Maybe something in the future that the league could look at? I think it would be really fun. Like, I'm for it just on the aspect of it makes every game competitive. I mean, you've heard the arguments, right? Like, what is a team that's dead last playing for at this point in the USL season? Suddenly, if there's promotion and relegation, it all matters. That's the clear argument. The thing that makes it important is the financial aspect where because USL teams aren't as dependent on, like, okay, we're Samsung, we're sponsoring the USL championship, that's how you're getting your revenue. And if you get relegated, suddenly you're losing all of that money. That's not the state of play right now. League One and the championship are making the same amount of money from the ESPN Plus TV deal. Almost all of these clubs are deriving the money they make from butts in the seats that are coming in the gate at the beginning of the game. You can do promotion and relegation without ruining a club if they get relegated, Meanwhile, by having this system in place, you're going to add a sense of legitimacy. And I think that it's silly that somebody doesn't follow the USL, and because they copy, if the USL does implement promotion and relegation, and copies what's done in Europe, there's a big group of people who are going to follow this league because it makes it seem more competitive and legitimate. And I think it's going to be a missed opportunity if the league doesn't implement it, Because right now is very much the time where you draw those eyeballs in, you come in with this baseline of this is a real legit competition, suddenly the 2026 World Cup happens in North America, in the United States, you're getting a whole raft of new soccer fans, you're getting many more eyeballs on the sport, and you as the USL then are set up to really take advantage of that leap in interest. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of arguments pro and against it. I know in talking to a lot of players that they're very pro-promotion relegation. So we'll see what gives with the winter meetings uh, in terms of the owners and the board of governors. I think we're going to see some pretty tangible progress towards it. So for the listeners, the hot take here is USL Tactics is claiming 2026 Pro-Rel is coming. So everyone <laughs> um, So, but speaking to that, to that point, John, you know, when you look at what it would take we're still signing and acquiring clubs into the championship level uh i believe that the current expansion fee is that is about 20 million dollars at one point does the league need to throttle back on that if they're going to be serious because i could see an argument that you know new teams joining have just spent this cash that maybe a charleston battery which is one of the you know ogs of the league did not spend that kind of capital um you know, and then the argument saying, well, hey, you know, where's our break? We just got here. Is it is it something that they need to address then before they continue to allow more teams to enter the league? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Knowing how leagues tend to operate, I think that we're never going to see them hold back in that way. You just want to because... see them say no to $20 million up front, cash on yeah, delivery? Ex- Exactly. Um, I I think expansion in the direction of the league is an interesting topic. I mean, you've got USL Iowa approved, kind of looking a little bit iffier given some of the pushback on the stadium, but Milwaukee is rolling forward nicely. Um, Arkansas, I think in the Little Rock area is going to happen. 
New Orleans, Jacksonville all have efforts coming along. There's a certain point where the league is going to get to that 30-ish number. Whether or not there's promotion and relegation, it becomes unwise just to keep adding teams for the sake of it. Moreover, like how many markets can there be with the ownership that's that interested? There's almost like this natural limitation on how much the USL championship can grow. So I think that I see them just milking the expansion money as much as they can in the short term, just because, like like you said, who's going to turn down that 20 number? No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we, we know Portland just uh, officially announced their club here at USL 1. And so we're looking forward to a potential uh, New England Cup because there's technically enough teams in all of the states within New England to have some sort of tournament with you know a couple of the states having usl2 groups um it'll be really interesting to see how these things kind of shape out over the next you know few years and a few seasons heading up to that 2026 world cup but i think because we could talk about usl dynamics the entire night i do want to make sure that we get a couple more questions in about rhode island fc specifically and you know earlier you had touched on what we believe you know coach Cano smith's might tactics might be in and kind of what he adopted at his time in Birmingham but I was wondering if you could kind of expand a little bit more on what Birmingham's style of play has been um, and kind of under, give the listeners a bit of a glimpse into what we may expect from a formation from a from a tactics perspective knowing that coach of course could flip all of that and that might have been um, the head coach's uh, kind of choice operating system mm-hmm. What, what else can we expect from Coach and what he might bring outside of that fluidity that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the principles that Birmingham have played with, and Birmingham has only ever had one manager in their what, five years of existence now, they always use four defenders. Typically, they're going to play in, I would call it a 4-4-2. You get some f- flexibility within that where... They tend to press pretty aggressively. They'll push those wingers up into a four-two-four when they're pressing. Uh, they tend to folk, they tend to use inverted wingers. So you're going to take somebody on the right wing who's left-footed, meaning he can cut inside, shoot on that left foot. They don't love to cross the ball. They tend to play on the ground a little bit more when they can. Uh, they're typically not very high possession, so you're often going to sit back. You're going to press very high initially. But then if that press is beaten, you're going to fall back into the deep block and just defend for your lives. They tend to be a very good counter-attacking team as well. I think given some of the experiences that Kano has had in his career and what he has as a player, given that he was a bit more of an attacking-minded kind of guy, it adds an interesting wrinkle to what he might do, where he probably has some more offensive ideas. That's kind of the knock on the Legion, is that they're defensive to a fault at times, but I would expect a back four. I would expect a high press, certainly, as some of the calling cards of the Gano system. So, with that being said, um, how do you think RFC's first season is going to go? Um, anything you'll be watching out for in particular? Um, I know you've said that at times new teams may find it difficult, but with the, you know expensive stadium kind of get the impression that this team is going to you know put their money where their mouth is what what are you looking at for the our first season here yeah i mean i think what makes it hard is that 
pretty much every single club in the East is willing to go out there, put their money on the table, and spend enough to get into the postseason. If you look at Loudoun, their lowest budget by far. Honestly, Detroit is a team that tends to cheap out on the roster. They've had a tough time this season, and they're back into the playoff mix. But yeah, they're gonna, their manager is retiring, so I think Detroit might have a tough season. That still leaves you 10 other teams vying for eight playoff spots before Rhode Island even gets there. For me, I would put the floor out. And granted, somebody's going to be moving over to the West just with the way that the conference is going to end up with San Diego folding and all of that. But, I mean, getting outside of that bottom three in the East, being in the mix for the playoff bubble, going down the stretch is probably a safe goal. If it ends up being something bigger and better than that, I think that's icing on the cake. But as long as you are competitive and you're not in the basement proper, I think that's probably the expectation I would set. And knowing the fact that there is always room for upside. Is there, because I've noticed with the standings on both the East and the West, that there seems to be a parity in, in the the top performing clubs, like you mentioned earlier, there's some fierce competition, and I don't think the seeding has really been locked in yet because it's that tight of a race. But to your other point, there are definitely two teams in the basement, one in each conference, that there's they're mathematically eliminated. At what point in the season do we kind of get a, a general threshold of if you're above a certain point line, you're at least in the playoffs? Or does that not come until, you know, the final weeks of the season historically? Yeah, I mean, if you're just setting, like, a pretty loose number, something between 40 and 45 points is what you're aiming for as, like, the bare minimum to be in the conversation. Honestly, it looks like it's trending a bit higher this year just because pretty much anyone who plays Hartford or Las Vegas is getting a free three points. Uh, it's also different this season because it's, like I said earlier, the first season uh, without the MLS affiliate teams in the mix. And they were always an interesting wrinkle because they were a free win for most teams and then they'd pull off an upset and it would kind of mess up the calculus there. So probably 45 points is the floor where you're feeling really good about playoff qualification. If Rhode Island gets to 40-ish, I think that's probably going to be an acceptable finish in my mind great great to hear and then uh one of the things that a listener made sure i asked you tonight is uh they are planning to travel abroad uh to at least one of the away games to support and represent rhode island fc as a fan and just kind of curious with your study of the league what would you say is the must destination both whether it's the stadium or it's just the fan environment that a Rhode Island FC fan who may be interested in traveling away, and, and let's say outside of the Hartford der- uh, Derby that we yeah. created, um, what, what's a what's a must first game away that, that fans should be participating in? Two things come to mind for it, and it would be Louisville and Detroit. Louisville is a fun experience because they have a pretty brand new soccer-specific stadium, and they're drawing ten to 12,000 people every single time out. Uh, they're one of the top three teams in attendance pretty consistently, and they've got a, a really awesome place to go watch a game. Detroit is kind of the opposite in terms of amenities, where they're playing in a kind of old, kind of shoddy setup at Keyworth Stadium there. 
but they pack that place full. It fits a shade under 7,000 as far as I remember, but the thing is packed to the gills. They, by a mile and a half, have the, I was going to say best, but at least the most passionate and fiery supporters of anybody in the USL. That can manifest itself in ways that can be negative towards everyone else at certain times, but you want them in the league just because they bring that little bit of edge, and going to a game there would be an unmatched away experience. Interesting. Uh, Detroit, I've heard a lot of good things from their supporter group culture, so they continue to be you know, flagged on my radar, so I'm going to have to pay them more attention for that opportunity. Um, and then speaking to the Derby itself, you know, I know that the supporter group for Rhode Island FC is intending to uh, kind of kickstart some sort of uh, no name yet for the Derby. So I'm, I'm really curious. I hope it's something organic and not created by media. Um, yeah. But we're hoping to replace whatever the top rival is in terms of Derbies within the league. But right now, what is that barometer? What's what's the, the match that listeners should be watching either in repeats on ESPN Plus now or, you know, look forward to if it's still going to happen in the season. Yeah, I mean, Indy against Louisville is one that I'm most familiar with as somebody who's got a bit of a love for an Indy 11 uh, team there. They call it the Louisville-Indianapolis Proximity Association Football Contest, which very nicely turns into L-I-P-A-F-C. It's like an in-joke that it's a terrible acronym. Uh, Birmingham against Memphis is a fun one. They call that the Southern Harm Derby. I'm trying to think out west. It's a little bit harder in the west just because you've got those big distances. I would probably point to uh, pretty much any game within Texas where they've got the little quote-unquote Copa Tejas going on. Those tend to be fiery. And then El Paso against New Mexico. I can't remember what they call the thing. That's another good one. But that little southwest corridor is always good for some competitive games too. As an Indy 11 fan yourself, do you own the corn cob kit? I think the corn cob kit is hilarious, and I wouldn't be caught dead wearing it. So if listeners <laughs> bought you a corn cob kit, <laughs> you would not entertain the appreciation that they went out and got you that wonderful gift? I'd frame it, not wear it. <laughs> Back to the conversations earlier about USL and MLS and, and the soccer pyramid as a whole. Do you see in a distant future where we'll have a typical football pyramid? I, I, I know that MLS will never, with their money, ever open up access, but, but is it possible that we can build the foundation of a, a thriving and stable pyramid below that? And then it maybe at one point it forces their hand to, to join and be a part of something greater in the, in the USSF? Yeah, I think with what you're mentioning at the end there is probably the likelier step in the short term that the USL will have promotion and relegation up a couple of tiers, uh, probably from League Two, and I guess it would be the fourth division up to the championship in the second tier. And hopefully at that point, you've got the very regional League Two leading all the way up to a lot more of a centralized championship, but the clubs would have stadiums, the clubs would have really robust youth infrastructures. Even if that happens, and this is a really high level of soccer that's churning out players year in and year out, I have a really impossible time seeing MLS ever agreeing to kind of unify the pyramid. And U.S. soccer, time and again, has kind of shown that they're going to keep MLS's interests first and foremost, so they're never going to force the hand. 
But the USL just doing the best it can is probably the end game. Does the USL have the responsibility to build out the rest of these leagues? I, I know that they've had the vision to do things like the USL one and US two, USL two, excuse me. But there's also competition at that Division two, Division three level with other leagues that are kind of in the space. So is is the first step in that hurdle to either combine or streamline and again does that all come at the behest of usl having to 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 run that party i think the interesting thing at these lower levels is that the usl kind of has been doing its own thing and taking care of its own affairs in the best way possible and then you're just going to have like something like a, a nisa and third division pop up and be pretty terribly run like if you think the usl has teams leave every year Nisa makes it look embarrassing by <laughs> contrast. Their their governance is terrible. They're just a really weak competitor. There is a scenario where the handful of decently run clubs there end up jumping over to USL League One. I, I think it would almost be like an aggressive takeover by League One at that point. Uh, the thing to watch certainly is MLS Next Pro, where Major League Soccer has moved all of their affiliate teams into this separate third division. But to pad that league out, MLS is uh, kind of eating up some markets that had some real robust USL interest. I'm thinking about, for instance, Huntsville, uh, Alabama, where the USL was very close to announcing a team there. All of a sudden, Huntsville, in collaboration with uh, Nashville in Major League Soccer, has a team in Next Pro. Uh, they're going to move into the Cleveland market within the next couple of years as well. That's been announced. Fending that off is interesting because... None of those clubs pretty much have real supporters, like their teams for youth players to get minutes, but they still have the financial heft that it has to be worrying. But the USL at the end of the day is focused on doing its own thing, making sure that it has its ducks in a row and is taking care of business. So I think the the final question I would love to get to know more about is the USL playoff system. Um, mm. It runs similar to how other domestic leagues kind of operate with single knockout and, and kind of a differentiation or a removal away from the two-leg system that a lot of European and, and more international leagues across the world participate in. Do you believe that's the right thing for a league trying to grow its fandom where, you know, the top three clubs could end up having all of the, the playoff games and maybe when you're trying to excite markets, that you know they don't get to participate in a home game with a two you know a two leg system is that a good thing for a growing league? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's another good one as well. In a perfect world, I would love the idea of like the single table, very European style, where whoever gets the most points in the regular season is the champion. It plays better to an American market to have the playoffs intact. Obviously, people are drawn into that. Playoff games get the highest attendance of anything, and they get more eyeballs. They end up on national TV uh, when you get to the championship game. The two-legged thing is interesting. Um, the league expanded the playoff field from 7 to 8 in each conference this season. A lot of people pointed to that and said, oh, you're just letting in another mediocre team. If you talk to anybody behind the scenes, the idea that they're going to get another game, possibly in the playoffs, where they're going to get that extra revenue can be make or break for some of these teams. Like if you are, I don't know, San Antonio, who suddenly gets an extra playoff game, 
that's a couple hundred thousand dollars that you were otherwise not going to have, and that means a lot to the bottom line at this caliber of soccer. The two-legged thing would only help that cause. At a certain point, the scheduling becomes a little difficult. The onus on the players, health and injury-wise, extending the season that much longer when it's nine months or more already, like that can be a lot, but... It certainly would make it more fair. At the end of the day, maybe you want to reward the teams that had good regular seasons with those home games, but an interesting debate. We'll, uh, we'll have to see what happens in the in the seasons to come. We really appreciate you spending time with us, getting to know you, getting to know us, and, and teaching listeners a lot more about the league than we've been able to, to demonstrate from a competency, a competency standpoint so far. So I think it's only fair at this point to turn over the floor to you and let the listeners know where can they find you, where can they reach you, you know, what do you have going on in your life? Yeah, I mean, first place to look just on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days for at USL Tactics, all like one word. I'm posting a thread about every single championship game there, like I mentioned. Uh, I'm linking to the writing that I do. So I've got my own Substack where kind of whatever is catching my attention, I'll scribble down something about. And then at backheeled.com. Uh, that's a subscription. The Substack is free unless you feel like basically donating to me. But uh, at Backhealed, it's, I think, $5 a month. But I'm basically writing a 5,000-word power ranking week that was recap kind of piece every single week that comes right to your inbox. And in addition to that, Backhealed is awesome for coverage of the national team, MLS, the NWSL, all of it. In addition to the writing stuff on Twitter and elsewhere, I'm a co-host of the USL Show podcast. We're pretty much the only show that's covering league-wide affairs week in and week out. Uh, we've got a really good group of hosts coming from markets all across the board. So give that a listen. Check me out on Twitter. Other than that, just want to thank you guys for letting me come on and blabber about the league some more. Oh, it has been our honor. We can't wait to have you again on the podcast as soon as for possible. Sure. And again, listeners, if you're not already subscribed to the stack, if you're not already donating to this man, uh, he is the single source of truth to help educate yourself and you know your family and friends on, on what's going on with the comings and goings of USL. So, John, thank you again so much for the time. I think there's only one last question. Will the New York Cosmos ever join USL Championship? I cannot, I cannot believe you baited me like this. I would be over the moon. Well, I actually, I live in New York City now, so that would be great. But boy, the, like the NASL heritage for me of F the Cosmos, I would want nothing more than to bring that back into existence. John, thank you so much for the time. We really do appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, John. So what did you think about John and, and the answers he gave? Uh, I think that was a great interview. Um I was almost worried I didn't have uh, like enough questions or, or too many, you know, but then it, it, you know, we kind of kind of tried to flow with it a little bit and got lost in, in the sauce, as they say. <laughs> I feel like John has done this enough times to where he could predict where we were going a couple times. So it was it was like we knew our next question, but he already had answered bits and pieces of it. So we, we have to be on an even sharper game. Yeah, we were just over here playing checkers, and he's playing like 4D underwater basket weaving or something. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he was uh, just really great to bring on. We hope that he can become a regular, at least you know as his time permits. I don't know how he fits all of that in 
on top of a, a you know a nine to five job that he has. Um, it's amazing to me that he's able to put together that kind of analytics program, and and he uses media assets. So if you go into his social medias on on Twitter or Instagram. You know, he, he puts together a whole video breakdown package and writes essays and does, you know, exposés on players. The amount of, I, I can't think of a harder working person in or outside of the league or a club. Uh, and it's it's quality stuff. So if you're not already following, uh, that's a must. And if you don't remember what we said or what he shared, uh, you're more than welcome to find our socials and just you can find him through what we follow um, because he's, he, we're fans of his work and he's just doing fantastic stuff. Yeah, I've actually read some of his articles there on the the Substack, and uh, really insightful stuff. Like you said, I don't, how does he have the time to learn all of this? I, I barely have time to do this podcast, and <laughs> he is making us look lazy. So I, I we we can learn a thing or two from him, but uh, I cannot wait to have him back on. So, listeners, if you feel like we didn't uh, ask enough questions, or if you think maybe we didn't ask all of the questions that you'd like to have seen let us know in uh the chats and the social medias uh to so that we can answer those questions the next time we have john on but i think um i think that wraps things up today i i feel like we've accomplished a lot and uh, i think the listeners are tired of hearing our voices so uh where can uh where can listeners find us all right so we have a twitter at rafc podcast we have a threads at RAFC Podcast. We have an Instagram at Raising Anchor. And we have a website, www.raisinganchorpodcast.com. Hey, man, as always, it's never not a pleasure to get to talk soccer with you. Anchors up. Double negatives. Anchors up. <laughs> Bye. Really appreciate it, you guys. Yeah, and I'll be sure to reach out and uh, listen to a couple of the pods just before I came on today. You guys are doing a great job. So that's it's really needed for every one of these clubs to have dedicated coverage, and you are filling that need already.